Good morning, everyone. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could join us today. The weather is hot, the air is muggy, and the bugs are biting us. Today, I'm going to talk about what a warmer climate means for mosquitoes and ticks. Climate change is playing a role in the way these insects thrive and migrate all across the world. And some of these bugs are carrying diseases and can infect you if they bite you. We've covered how climate change has affected Minnesota throughout the summer with unhealthy air from Canadian wildfires and the extreme heat, much like we're experiencing today and this week. And a reminder, you can listen to both of those recent shows on my podcast. Just search for NPR News with Angela Davis wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm talking with guests about how Minnesota's longer and hotter summers are actually helping pesky mosquitoes and ticks lurking outdoors, how it's helping them thrive, and how a bite can make you more than just itchy. It can cause illness. And as I talk with my guests this morning, I want to hear from you. I want to know if you've ever had a tick bite or a mosquito bite that made you sick. What do you do to avoid bug bites and being bitten when you're outdoors? What questions do you have for our guests about illnesses from insects? The phone lines are open. Call us at 651-227-6000. Again, the number is 651-227-6000. You can also call us at 800-242-2828. Eight. Let's bring in our guests. Joining me in the studio this morning is Elizabeth Schiffman. Elizabeth is the epidemiologist supervisor of the Vectorborne Disease Unit with the Minnesota Department of Health. That sounds impressive, Elizabeth. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. All right. We'll talk more about your work in just a moment. We also have with us uh, on the line Dr. Jonathan Patz, a medical doctor in occupational and environmental medicine and uh, a distinguished achievement professor at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. His research focused focuses on the environmental health effects of climate change and solutions for global health. He's joining us from Seattle this morning. Good morning, Dr. Patz. Angela, it's an honor to be with you. All right. Thank you for your time this morning. And in a few minutes, we will have Kirk Johnson on the line as well. Kirk is a vector ecologist with the Metropolitan Mosquito Control District here in St. Paul. So uh, to begin with, you know, to me, ticks and mosquitoes are simply part of the summer experience here in Minnesota. You know, you pay attention, you take precautions, but recognize, hey, they're this is where they live outdoors. So, Elizabeth, you're at the State Health Department. How how should we be thinking about uh, insects like ticks and mosquitoes when we are out hiking or camping or maybe just playing around in the backyard? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think I think you're thinking about it the right way. I mean, we are in their environment when we go outside and enjoy the outdoors and they enjoy the same weather that we do. So they are out and active during that same time of year that we like to be out and active. And so, yeah, having that awareness, knowing what you can do to protect yourself and um, and your family and your pets uh, is, is really the key thing. So keeping in mind when you head outside that it's a different experience and, and you do want to take some precautions. Exactly. Yeah. So things like remembering, you know, in addition to your sunscreen, remembering your bug repellent maybe mm-hmm. is a, is a really big one. Knowing that, you know, early, early, um, Summer, late spring is kind of higher risk for tick-borne diseases than mosquito-borne diseases. And then mosquito-borne risk kind of picks up later in the summer. And just kind of knowing like what you should be looking for and where in the state maybe your risk for one might be higher than the other. So just Mm -hmm. that awareness is a big part of what we try to um, educate people about. And as we move from county to county throughout Minnesota, it's different, right? It is. It is absolutely different. We have, you know, this beautiful varied landscape here with, you know, our great forests and Mm -hmm. lakes, but then we have 
of the prairie uh, and farmland in the western part of the state and the southern part of the state. And that is, you know, those environments um, are perfect for different kinds of mosquitoes and ticks. So you have to, to know where you are and what's out there. Exactly. Right? And I'm also very uh, aware, uh, Dr. Patz, that we're seeing all kinds of environmental changes here in Minnesota and around the world. Uh, as a researcher, Dr. Patz, what can you tell us about uh, the impact of our planet getting warmer and how that climate change affects the behavior and patterns of, of insects like mosquitoes and ticks? Yeah, um, Angela, climate change, of course, it's, uh, it's happening now. Uh, climate scientists agree, and we've seen in the news, and even today, of course, the, the heat wave that's, that's hitting Minnesota and, and mm-hmm. most of the country, uh, wildfires and, and wildfire smoke. So these are very obvious direct impacts from a changing climate. And in my own view, when I look at the multiple exposure pathways through which climate change affects our health, uh, I view this as one of our most serious public health issues. What people don't realize is when they see the, the smoke and they feel the heat, they forget about infectious diseases. And infectious diseases, especially those carried by uh, insects and rodents, are biological systems that are quite sensitive to changing weather patterns. And it's a, a sort of an insidious problem, just as important as the heat waves and the wildfire smoke um, are the, the shift in uh, transmission of, of vector-borne diseases. And that's because um, insects are cold-blooded. And if they're carrying pathogens, whatever the air temperature is, that's the body temperature of that tick or mosquito, and that has a tremendous impact on transmission of these diseases. So we're seeing longer transmission seasons. We're seeing mosquitoes that are infectious uh, more quickly with during heat waves. Um, so, so this is a sort of one of these uh, uh, sleeper issues. It's beneath the surface, but it can be a huge issue that people aren't recognizing uh, risk from climate change due to vector-borne diseases, and also mm-hmm. waterborne diseases, because it's not just temperature. It's also extremes of the water cycle, flooding, contamination. And so infectious diseases is, uh, mm-hmm. are, are a big part of the risks posed by climate change. So the longer seasons, what does that mean uh, for us as, as humans, if, if mosquitoes are having a longer uh, lifespans, longer seasons? What does that mean for us? Well, mosquitoes aren't having longer lifespans, but it means that the the climatic conditions are more suitable over a longer period Mm. of time for transmission. In Africa, we're seeing, for example, also shifts in geographic distribution. So mosquitoes are, uh, malaria-carrying mosquitoes are able to move up in the highlands where malaria used to be precluded from from, uh, colder temperatures, but now uh, those diseases are creeping up into the highlands that used to be too cold for malaria to take hold. And uh, with malaria, I think we said in the introduction that, um, or, or something that I read, that it's showing up in places that we haven't seen before here in the U.S. Well, uh, I'll just say that, um, you know, we have a, a, a pretty strong public health system in the United States. We don't do enough mosquito surveillance of uh, many diseases, but I think for something like malaria, uh, that would be more a matter of international travel. I mean, the mosquitoes that carry dengue Mm. fever, Zika virus, um, and in some parts, malaria, 
are already here, but I think it's more a matter of um, human travel with people infected with parasites that come into the country. And I think you have to separate travel-related malaria with actually malaria moving up into the country, which I think is mm-hmm. less, much, much less likely. So uh, the patterns are changes. Uh, what about ticks uh, in particular? What stands out to you and what people may not know about, you know, some changes in, in ticks? Well, for the ticks, I, I defer a little bit more to your Minnesota experts, but I'll just <laughs> say that uh, Lyme disease is the most mm. uh, prevalent vector-borne disease in the United States. Uh, it's very complicated. Uh, certainly, warmer temperatures affect um, the tick uh, life cycle, but uh, it's land use issues, how we're you know deforesting and we fragment forest and, and make for more uh, uh, better deer habitat, and it's a matter of how many white-footed mice there are, which carry the bacteria that causes Lyme disease, and uh, deer populations that support the adult tick populations. Uh, but I defer to your local mm. experts, but Lyme, Lyme disease is very tricky. Uh, climate models have shown that Lyme is likely to increase, especially in <sighs> deciduous forests in Canada. I'm not sure what Our to neighbors. say about yeah. Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, white-footed mice, that, that's a new one for me. Uh, tell me uh, what we should know about about uh, about that. Oh, well, Elizabeth. well, well Elizabeth, she's nodding yeah. here. Uh, hold on, Dr. Pat. Yeah, yeah. I'll, let's let go for it, Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so white-footed mice, often when we think about um, the ticks that we have here in Minnesota, the black-legged tick especially, or the deer tick, um, you know, we think about deer, obviously, because that's right. in the name. But it's actually the the white-footed mice that are kind of the main reservoir species for a lot of the um, bacteria that the ticks can transmit to us and make us sick, like ah. Lyme disease. So, you know, it's that's how it's maintained in nature is that, you know, the ticks feed on the mice, the mice get infected from the tick bites, and it just sort of cycles through. And the deer are more of a, they play a different role in the life cycle, whereas, you know, they're an important food source for adult ticks, and they can be a place where adult ticks can can meet and mate. Mm -hmm. Um, So really, when we talk about disease, we we talk a lot about those white-footed mice and their populations. And as we talk about uh, changes, uh, you know, remind us what we saw last summer when it came to illnesses, uh, Elizabeth, related uh, first with uh, ticks here in Minnesota. what do what do you recall as we kind of look back as as we look to this summer compared to last summer? Sure. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Sure. I think you know when we look at the trends over time, we generally see increases. You know, kind of the long the long view is a is a general increase um, of the numbers of cases of diseases that are reported. Some years might be a little down, some years might be a little higher, and it generally averages out to that increase. Um, I think last year we started to see more of the pattern that we saw before COVID. COVID really disrupted everything in public health, including our ability to accurately um, count cases of diseases and because people weren't going to the doctor for that. And, you know, everything Mm -hmm. was different. And so last year was kind of the first year where I think it was kind of more back to the the pre-COVID patterns, um, you know, in terms of what we saw for for diseases and reports and things like that. So, yeah. And so uh, the the trends, uh, how would you describe the, the trend? 
The trend is definitely increasing. So if you looked at numbers from, say, 2010 or the year 2000, for example, and you just looked at straight numbers like how many Lyme disease cases were reported that year versus this year, you would see an increase. And you'd see that for all of our diseases, for anaplasmosis, for babesiosis, um, at least on the tick-borne side. The mosquito-borne side, it's a lot more variable because um, because they're so sensitive to some of these uh, more immediate weather right. situations. So those numbers are a little less predictable, but definitely on the tick side, the trend is an increase. And a, a term, I want to get a definition, vector-borne uh, yes. diseases, uh, vector units, vector. Uh, <laughs> what does vector mean? What are we saying when we say that? Yeah. So um, so in this context, vectors are the ticks or the mosquitoes. So they're actually the little creatures that are carrying the, the mm-hmm. pathogens, the bacteria that can make us sick. So when we talk about vector-borne diseases, it just means diseases that are transmitted by a tick or a mosquito. But vector is a weird word and it has lots of other uses like in math and things that are totally unrelated. I just wanted to address that. (laughs) Okay, if you're joining us, we're talking about insect-borne illnesses, uh, specifically really mosquitoes and ticks. Uh, Have you ever had a tick or mosquito bite that made you sick? What do you do to avoid bug bites and being bitten outside? What questions do you have for our guests as we talk about uh, these illnesses from insects and also about the impact of climate change? Call us at 651- Two two seven six thousand or eight hundred two four two twenty eight. I see some listeners are calling in, and I want you to hold on because I have a guest I want to bring in who can just be with us for a few minutes. Uh, we've got Kirk Johnson with us now. Kirk, you're a vector ecologist with the Metropolitan Mosquito Control District in St. Paul. Good morning to you. Good morning, Angela. I'm glad to be able to talk to you today. So what do you want Minnesotans to know about mosquitoes this summer? What are we dealing with, uh, particularly here in the Twin Cities metro area? Well, here in Minnesota, our our most common mosquito-borne disease is West Nile illness. Mm. Um, We see West Nile circulation every year in Minnesota, just like in most other states. Um, We have had the the benefit of being one of the northernmost states that deals with West Nile virus, so... um, our, our weather patterns tend to suppress West Nile a bit more than is the case in other states, but we're seeing um, the, the potential for that trend to, to change and have the, the possibility for more West Nile transmission as our climate continues to warm. So, so this, that's, that's something that I think we always need to be aware of here in Minnesota, that the, the threat of mosquito-borne disease is ever-present in the summer now with West Nile. Uh, remind me about West Nile virus. What does that do to someone's body? And I guess Elizabeth or Dr. Pats could follow up with more on that as well, but what's your understanding of what West Nile, uh, the symptoms are? So West Nile infections can range from anywhere from asymptomatic infections in about 80% of people exposed to a a fairly severe flu-like illness to uh, meningitis or encephalitis cases. And and there is a a case fatality rate of close to 10% in those more severe cases. Hmm. I don't like anything with itis attached to it. Encephalitis, uh, that's another uh, illness you can get from a mosquito bite. Correct. Encephalitis is a condition. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's an inflammation of of the brain. Mm. It can be caused by a number of different mosquito-borne viruses. Serious. And, and a number of other things. Elizabeth, you're nodding. Tell us more about this. Yeah, so it's um, it's kind of a catch-all term. A lot of different um, disease agents can cause an encephalitis or a meningitis presentation. It just means that the, the virus or the bacteria has kind of chosen, you know, your brain or your spinal fluid to 
that's where it's kind of attacking you. And so that's where your right. body is going to react. And that reaction from your immune system, it, it, you know, to my understanding, is what's causing that inflammation that then has all those cascading effects that can make you sick. Now, Kirk, we've heard reports of, uh, you know, a bad mosquito season uh, uh, at the beginning of the spring uh, and also over the winter uh, as the snow started to melt. And did that prove to be true, Kirk? Sure. So we actually have 51 different mosquito species in Minnesota, and there's a 52nd species that is introduced periodically but doesn't survive here. 51? And some of those, yeah, some of those mosquitoes are only present in the spring and early summer. Um, we typically refer to those as spring 80s mosquitoes or spring snowmelt mosquitoes. Those are mosquitoes that lay their eggs over the, the course of the early part of the summer, and those eggs don't hatch until the following year after they've been frozen for the winter. And then we have snowmelt that, that floods the wetlands that those eggs are in, and that's when, as soon as that water becomes liquid, those mosquitoes hatch. We had um, two very dry springs prior to this year, and then we had near-record amounts of snowfall over this last winter, which mm -hmm. resulted in most of those habitats for those spring 80 species flooding up past where the last several years' worth of mosquito eggs were because they just didn't hatch when those sites were dry the last two springs. So, yeah, we did, we did see a considerable increase in those spring 80s mosquitoes this year. And so but since then, it yeah. has been very dry, and a lot mm -hmm. of the, the summer floodwater mosquitoes, the mosquitoes that hatch after a heavy rainfall, have been, um, the populations have been quite low because we just haven't been receiving enough rainfall to flood the eggs and cause them to hatch. Okay, and, and will hot days like the ones we're seeing this week, uh, Kirk, will they affect the mosquito population in, in, in the metro area and across Minnesota? And if so, how? Warm weather definitely can influence the mosquito population. It also is, is very important in the West Nile cycle, as Dr. Patz was alluding to. Um, there are some species that don't require rainfall for their eggs to hatch. Those those tend to be mosquitoes that lay their eggs directly on the water surface, so that even in a in a drought cycle, they can find habitats to lay their eggs in, and they hatch um, and they develop very quickly when the weather is warm. Mm -hmm. When when uh, mosquito development is in part dictated by the ambient temperature, so during cool periods, some of these mosquitoes might take. 10 or more days to go from egg to adult. And in very hot weather, like we've been experiencing this summer, that can be reduced to five days. Mm. So we see more generations during the hot summers than we would during a cool summer. Oh, it's just a party out there, sounds like. They are, they're, those mosquitoes are doing quite well. Okay. And so what... They also happen to be the mosquitoes that are most important in West Nile transmission. Mm. Um, so... West Nile virus is a, a virus that circulates among mosquitoes and birds. It's a bird virus. Um, that virus has a, adapted over millions of years to um, the, a bird's body temperature, which tends to be a bit higher than ours. A lot of birds have body temperatures of in the range of 103 to 105 degrees Fahrenheit. Hmm. So those higher temperatures are ideal for West Nile virus. And when the virus is in a mosquito, when a mosquito feeds upon an infected bird and takes that virus in, the virus infects the tissues of the mosquito itself um, through replication. The replication of that virus is much faster during hot periods than cool periods. That virus needs to make it to the salivary glands of 
the mosquito before it takes another blood meal in order to infect the next bird or person or horse. And if that virus does not make it to the salivary glands before it takes the next blood meal, then the mosquito isn't playing its role in uh, perpetuating the transmission of that virus. But when it's warm, then the then the virus can make it to the salivary glands in a much shorter period of time. Mm-hmm. And by the time that mosquito takes its second blood meal, it's able to transmit the virus to that next host that it feeds upon. So there's the connection. So where does the Metropolitan Mosquito Control District come in? Because you, I feel like you guys are superheroes right now. Uh, what are you all doing uh, to, to capture, to test, report mosquitoes in the state or to try to control the population? So we have an integrated pest management program for the number of mosquito species that we're we're actively controlling. Uh, It means we're doing surveillance of a number of different types, targeting about three dozen different mosquito species for control. Um, We survey adult populations. We collect larval samples in their aquatic habitats. Most of the control work we do is in those aquatic habitats, so we're looking for target mosquito species and then applying larvicides to the habitats when we locate those species in concentrations above a threshold. Um, for the West Nile vectors, you know, it's important for us to do that work proactively through the season before we even have an indication of how bad the West mm-hmm. Nile season might be. Um, so we've been doing that work now since the end of May, and we're just now starting to see an increase in West Nile virus activity Mm. Um, and it's interesting now that we've received some rain overnight and, and also on Monday. Um, you were talking with Elizabeth early, earlier about differences in the state of Minnesota, mm-hmm. county-by-county county differences for, for different vector-borne diseases. And the western part of Minnesota have, happens to be a higher-risk portion of the state for West Nile transmission. I noticed checking a few rain gauges um, from last night's rainfall that there was a, a band of three to four inches of rain that, that looks like it stretched from around Kensington in west-central Minnesota to Wilmer, and mm-hmm. then a larger area that received more than two inches of rain. That, um, that might result in, uh, first, a, a, a larger hatch and emergence of these floodwater 80s mosquitoes, which tend to be um, very annoying. They're aggressive human-biting mosquitoes, but then... Maybe another week later, a hatch of our main West Nile vector, Culex tarsalis. That's a prairie flood, flood, flood land mosquito, prairie wetland mosquito. Um, and Cookie, and uh, on your website, the Metropolitan Mosquito Control District, you guys have maps that has this information for people if they're traveling around the state to be aware of some of the, the, the hot areas that they should be aware of. Is that correct? Well, our, our service area is the seven-county metro area, so we mm-hmm. do have maps that that indicate the collection levels throughout mm-hmm. the seven county metro area. There isn't a lot of surveillance occurring outside of the seven metro counties. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so surveillance for West Nile virus is more passive in, in other counties in the state. Okay. Well, Kirk, I, I feel like I need to let you get back to work because it sounds like you have a lot to do there. <laughs> uh, that is Kirk Johnson, a, a vector ecologist with the Metropolitan Mosquito Control District in St. Paul. Thank you for your time, Kirk. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Angela. Uh, my goodness, Dr. Petz, uh, anything you want to weigh in? <laughs> There's a lot that we talked about what we're wow. seeing. Yeah, no, that was really um, wonderful to, to hear that information. And it's a reminder of what Kirk talked about. 
how, uh, you know, the physiology and how the, the virus or the parasite needs to get into the mosquito salivary glands. This is where I think listeners really need to understand the risk of from climate change with infectious diseases. When someone thinks about Minnesota, you say, well, it's 20 below zero in the wintertime and gets up to 95 uh, in the summer. Who cares about one or two degrees average warming? This is where when you're dealing with a biological system like mosquito-borne diseases or tick-borne diseases, a tiny bit of change in temperature can mean a world of difference in the transmission dynamics. And mm-hmm. and what Kirk was talking about was the, the incubation period is shortened dramatically when it's warmer. The incubation period of, of the parasite in the mosquito, those mosquitoes become more infectious much more rapidly in warmer temperatures. We saw with the Zika virus um, that invaded uh, Brazil and Central America and came into the Southern United States, the temperatures in Brazil and Colombia and across the region were the highest temperatures uh, within a 60 year uh, record. Uh, so we, this, this occurred after the very strong El Nino uh, of the winter of 2015 and 16. And the mosquitoes, which is uh, 80s, 80s Egypti mosquito, a different species, a different genus from the ones that carry West Nile. That's the Culex mosquito, as Kirk talked about. But the 80s Egypti mosquito had a very high temperature suitability. It's called vec- vectorial capacity, the ability to transmit virus from one infected person to infect more people. It was at the highest level in the last 60 years following those extremely hot temperatures from the El Nino. So this is where I think it's so important when we do think about heat waves and other direct effects of climate change to recognize just how amplifying mm-hmm. uh, small temperature changes can be in uh, when you're dealing with insect-borne diseases. Uh, I'm very concerned about, uh, you know, what I, I was just listening to Kirk to describe mosquitoes that carry West Nile virus and um Elizabeth, you're with the health department. What do you want people to know about West Nile and and, and how do you protect yourself from that? Yeah. um, So as Kirk mentioned, West Nile is our most common mosquito-borne disease. We do have a few others that we see routinely uh, that are much, much less common. Mm -hmm. Um, So West Nile is the one we tend to talk about the most. Um, As Kirk mentioned, um, those mosquitoes that transmit that, um, they really like an like an open farm prairie type habitat. Mm -hmm. So we tend to see... um, higher incidence of disease in kind of the western part of the state because that's where we have the right habitat for those mosquitoes. Um, but it is possible for people to get it anywhere in Minnesota. Um, but especially if you're out, you know, in those in the western part of the state, um, those mosquitoes tend to be more active at dusk and dawn. So during these hot these hot days, it's like, oh, well, if that's I have when we things, go out, right? exactly. You want right. to get out before it's hot or you wait until the evening. And that unfortunately is the time that those mosquitoes can be very active and out and biting. So and what are the symptoms of that? Again, is it flu like symptoms? How would I know? Symptoms. So usually, you know, as Kirk mentioned, most people who get infected with West Nile never even know that they're sick. You know, they don't have any symptoms at all. Their body fights off the virus. And, and that's that. And that's one of the reasons I think that we, there's probably a lot more 
disease than we are able to track just because people aren't getting sick. They're not going to the doctor. They're not getting tested. And then we don't really have a way to document that it's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but if people do get sick, they'll you know tend to get fevers, headaches, body aches, um, and just not feel very well, mm-hmm. which is you know flu-like, as Kirk said. And then you know you don't really think about getting the flu in the summer. So I think for people, if you start to feel like achy, fevery, headachy, those are symptoms that you might want to stop and think. Okay, have I been spending a lot of time outside? Maybe I should talk to my healthcare provider and you know, let them know that I'm having these symptoms and I was out hiking or gardening. Is this particularly problematic if you're uh, elderly or a young kid? Exactly. More dangerous? So with West Nile virus, we tend to see more severe disease in older adults. Mm -hmm. So older adults are people whose immune systems aren't Mm -hmm. working quite right. Um, Children are not as impacted by West Nile for whatever reason. We have a different mosquito-borne disease that we tend to worry about more with children called lacrosse encephalitis um, that tends to be more common in the southeastern part of the state. So I don't know. We always have something for everybody, I guess. Do you guys on the health department's website, do you have maps that show what's where? Um, we do have some maps. We have some information. It's something we're, I think, working on doing a better job of having some of that. But we mm-hmm. definitely have um, some maps up that show kind of highest risk areas of the state. Okay. Um, as Kirk mentioned, mosquito surveillance is not very robust um, anywhere outside of the Twin Cities metro. Because to do it right, it costs a lot of money. It's really time intensive. And a lot of people just I don't know, it's it's not seen as a big priority. And I think we would have a lot better information if maybe we did have better surveillance throughout the state. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's kind of up to local jurisdictions how much they want to, you know, invest in that. And they have a lot of priorities. Let's go to the phone lines. Thank you for waiting. In Minneapolis, Mary is on the phone. Good morning, Mary. What do you want to tell us? Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'll keep it brief. I got Mm -hmm. Lyme this summer, and it was a lot of the symptoms of West Nile that your guest described. Mm -hmm. Low fever, achiness everywhere, but not like any flu that I had ever had, not like COVID. And so I decided to seek medical care. And uh, doing some research, I thought it might be Lyme. I go to a cabin in Washington County, which has a high incidence of Lyme, And I went to urgent care and I said, hey, what about Lyme? And they said, it's the flu. And they took blood work, but they didn't order a Lyme test, even though I said, could it be Lyme? Well, two days later, I still have that 102 low-grade fever. I go Mm. to the emergency room. This was my birthday, by the way. Um, Mm. And I say, hey, could it be Lyme? I am giving you this idea on a silver platter And they said, it's the flu. They took blood work again, no Lyme test. And I hadn't found a tick. I didn't present with a rash. And I later learned that 30% of people don't present with that bullseye rash. And sometimes it doesn't even look like a bullseye. So finally, I got in with my primary and she listened and ordered a Lyme test. Well, guess what? (laughs) It was positive. It was positive for Lyme, Mm -hmm. but I really felt like uh, I had been dismissed because I had no tick, because I had no rash, even though I was describing symptoms that were atypical for Mm -hmm. me. And I know we have doctors on the line, so I'm not trying to disparage anybody, but it does sort of speak to that icky feeling that sometimes women have to work a little bit harder 
to be taken seriously. And here I was for 10 days with this acute Lyme. And if I had waited like they told me to, I could have easily tipped over into chronic Lyme and lifelong neurological and cognitive deficits. Well, Mary, I'm so sorry that this happened to you, but I'm happy that you called in because I do want to talk about Lyme disease. And uh, and I know so many people have a hard time get, getting it diagnosed, and it, it can cause a, a huge uh, disruption to people's lifestyle for, for years. And so, uh, Elizabeth, what first of all, uh, Mary talked about this getting this diagnosis. And what is so hard about diagnosing Lyme disease? Yeah, I think, you know, unfortunately, it's not an uncommon story um, know, that we've heard. I think I think some of the challenges are, you know, the symptoms are really nonspecific. And so sometimes looking at it after the fact, it's like, oh, yeah, that's very obviously what it was. Um, and sometimes, you know, when you're, I think, doctors, they're faced with what could it be? And they have to just, you know, do this whole differential of all these things. But, you know, I, I, I hate hearing that when someone comes in and they say, I had exposures and and I think it could be this when they're not feeling listened to. I think that's that's a problem. And we always try to encourage, you know, a, we do a lot of medical education as part of our work at the health department. So we try to keep this from from being a continued thing. But unfortunately, it's just it's just challenging. And sometimes I think in those urgent care ED settings, you know, the providers just don't always have the time that they need right. to do the listening. And Mary pers- persisted, but this is interesting. She said she didn't um, have that rash and that bullseye rash, which you often hear about uh, with Lyme disease, that you get a, a, a tick bite and then it's uh, red circles. And yeah. is that sometimes not the case? Sometimes it's not the case. Um, you know, the the numbers vary, you know, maybe 20% of people to, you know, sometimes higher proportions you know, don't report having that rash, and it is possible. They don't always look like the the perfect target logo that that I think we think about. They can look different than that. Um, they can be harder to diagnose if you know on people with darker skin tones they don't show up as well. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, but it's not every not everyone has one, so it's it's a telling symptom, but it's not the only symptom for sure. And uh, Dr. Pat, anything you can tell us about uh, Lyme disease uh, in your research that you feel people should know. Well, I just say um, I agree with everything that Elizabeth said. That Lyme disease is really uh, sometimes it's very hard to diagnose, and sometimes the lab test is not accurate. Mm-hmm. And many times, and, and I I've been doing research for the last two decades, and not really not clinical medicine. Uh, but when I was practicing a long, long time ago, I do remember that uh, the test the test was unreliable, and sometimes even if you tested for Lyme disease, uh, you would want to go more with the history of, well, I was in a Lyme area. Uh, I did have a tick uh, or could likely have had a tick bite. And even without the rash, uh, sometimes the lab test is wrong. So I, I know back in my day that people would of, often go ahead and treat with doxycycline, um, you know, just presumptively. But I'm I'm a little bit out of practice there. Mm-hmm. And uh, but but it is a tricky diagnosis. And Elizabeth, it's common too for people to continue to have symptoms for months and even years. Yeah, it it, it depends. So so um you know, people get diagnosed, they get treated with the antibiotic, the antibiotic kills the bacteria. But what can happen is your immune system and, you know, you, you just have kind of these chronic issues that can be related to it. Um, and that can make it really tricky. And I think there's, there's a lot of good information. And there's a lot of maybe not 
so good information that's not well supported by science. And it can be hard for people to, you know, differentiate between the two. And I think people do get dismissed a lot in clinical settings. And it's, it can be a really, a really icky topic. So it's still being researched, still being studied, but in many ways, still a mystery. I think, yeah, it's, you know, there, there are definitely some mysteries about it. I think, mm. you know, we know that most people, for most people, Lyme is a very treatable condition, and they recover, mm-hmm. and it's fine. But we know that for some people, for whatever reason, we just don't fully understand why it, you know, it does cause some persistent problems. Uh, another phone call from a listener as we talk about insect-borne illnesses uh, in Maple Grove. John's on the phone. Hi, John. Thank you for waiting. Good morning, and thank you. Uh, I'm going to go back 20 years when Lyme's wasn't maybe that uh, common or known. Mm-hmm. But I was up west of Baudette taking pictures in a ditch of the showy lady slipper, and I think deer and other critters like the ditch, too. <laughs> and about two weeks later... Uh, or a week later, two weeks, that was a while ago, um, every joint in my body ached. So I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm getting old or whatever. I'm 81 <laughs> right now. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, so I noticed a rash, not a big rash, on the back of my shoulder by my neck. And uh, I thought, hmm, it's not a bullseye, but I'm going to go to the doctor. So I went to my GP in Maple Grove, and he looked at me and uh asked me about where I was and so on and so forth. And uh, so he started me on, he took a sample, blood sample, sent it in, but he gave me, uh, it sounded like limes to him. Fortunately, uh, back then, uh, not all doctors maybe knew about it real well. But uh, so about two weeks later, uh, I was positive. So he upped the uh, antibiotic and uh, I turned, uh, I was good and haven't had anything since. So what do you do now, John, to protect yourself since you've had Lyme disease in the past? Do you uh, do things differently when you're walking around in ditches taking photos? Yeah, I'm a biology major. I taught in Anoka. And um, so what I do is I wear light-colored pants, even if it's hot out, long pants. And I wear white socks and a tall ones and pull them up, tuck my uh, pants into my uh, socks. Mm -hmm. And... uh, White socks, because, you know, you can spot things easier. But those the ticks are about, what, one-fourth the size or one-half the size? So they're kind of tiny. But then when I get home, I throw everything in the dryer, underwear, the whole works, and um, fry them. They're whatever you want to call it. The heat from and the dryer. Um, mm. Yes, and heat. Mm-hmm. So then uh, I'll jump in the shower and kind of use a rag and kind of go over all parts of my body. So you're not playing. You're uh, not going back down that road again. I like this. I I, I feel like I've seen you out there, John, in, in, in your, your long white socks uh, uh, with your pants tucked in, in there. I see a lot of people that way. But uh, is that in your circle of friends? I mean, a lot of people do that. They know if you're going to be walking through tall grasses that there's a threat that t- you could get a tick bite. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I, my kids and my friends, I've told them all what to do when they're out doing things. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk to our guests about that. Thank you, uh, John, there in Maple Grove. And uh, I, I appreciate hearing uh, your story. Um, anything that we know about, I mean, if you're going to be out um, walking through grassy or areas where brush is hitting you, uh, does it make sense to like cover yourself up? Yeah. 
Um, John actually takes a lot of great precautions. I'm really (laughs) impressed. Um, Yeah, I mean, the one thing he didn't mention is is repellent, which can be another good tool to help keep ticks from getting on you at all. But, you know, the pants and the, the socks over the pants to help you be able to spot things. The tick checks are always good. Um, throwing stuff in the dryer is is a great trick because then, you know, if there is anything that is still crawling on your clothes, it'll kill it in the heat. Um, and then the shower, that's that's all great stuff. Um, so those are all great methods, but, but the repellent. I would really encourage people to wear mm-hmm. insect repellent. And Dr. Pat's people who are looking for ways to protect themselves, your thoughts on this? Well, I'll say one thing when, when you're looking, when you're in places where you expect there to be ticks, right? Uh, certainly take protection. But with climate change, we're beginning to see a shift in the uh, distribution of these diseases. For example, the Lone Star tick, uh, which didn't used to be in Wisconsin, has moved north into Wisconsin. That's the tick that uh, causes meat allergy. If you get bitten by that tick, you then uh, become allergic to eating meat for the rest of your life. I've heard of this. Um, we've mm-hmm. seen in um, in Scandinavia, there are studies showing a movement of tick-borne encephalitis uh, further north in the, in Norway and Sweden. So, you know, on the one hand, you know, where you, where you know there are going to be ticks and you know there's Lyme disease, take these precautions. But with climate change, we're seeing a growing a shift in the northerly distribution of some of these diseases. Because the the insects, they're moving to places they've never been before. Mm-hmm. Yes, oh. exactly. All right. Uh, another phone call from a, a listener in Minneapolis. Sherry's on the phone. Good morning, Sherry. What do you want to tell us as we talk about insect-borne illnesses? Hi. Hello. Um, thank you for taking the call. Mm-hmm. Um, my story is similar to Mary's. Um, this was the summer of 2020 when, you know, COVID was still very new and people didn't know. And I got really sick. I had a very high fever. You know, it took a few days to get the COVID test and then the results, which was negative. Um, I, my husband had had a similar, very high fever, similar symptoms a few years ago, and it had turned out to be um, an insect-borne illness. And so I, you know, did a, a video visit with the provider and he did not believe me. We, we took blood tests uh, for Lyme and other, other tick-borne illnesses. Um, I had been out in the woods, you know, about a week before. And the um, blood tests for those specifically came up negative, but I had a few other indicators in my blood that aligned with what the CDC listed as um, possible symptoms or indicators for a uh, insect-borne illness, but he still would not give me doxycycline or anything. He just, again, it was the flu, you know, it just wait a few days. And I, I had been really sick by, you know, for about six days by now. So um, we have a veterinarian in our family and he looked it up, my blood work, and he said, this looks a lot like a tick-borne illness. And he had been the person who had to prescribe my husband's because my husband a few years ago had gone through the same thing with a his healthcare provider. So um, again, it's not, you know, it's not the way the system's supposed to work. And we have the mm-hmm. privilege of having a veterinarian in our family. But once I took that doxycycline, I was within 12 hours, my fever had been gone and I, I felt much better. Um, same experience as my husband. So mm-hmm. I just, it seems like veterinarians see that possibly in dogs. And I don't know, he, he, he picked it right away. 
I never did get a positive test for any specific illnesses, but I'm wondering that there are more illnesses that are not um, showing up on tests. And, you know, what is the standard of care? Because I, I just feel like people, like Mary said, too, you know, we're, we're trying to get the best care. And I understand that overprescribing antibiotics is not good either. But what, mm-hmm. I don't know, what can be done to kind of educate all healthcare providers to, you know, on the danger of this? Mm. Thank you. That's Sherry in Minneapolis. Dr. Pats, uh, what do you have to say about what, what the future of, uh, of diagnosis, treatment, and care may look like? Because um, it sounds like we're more people are, are taking this more seriously and, and, and studying things more. But do you see the future of care improving? Well, um, I, you know, ideally we want to have um, we want to have vaccines for these infectious diseases. And I know mm-hmm. that there there are vaccines for for dogs. Um, and, and Lyme disease is quite uh, recognized, is more recognizable, I think, in animals, um, especially with poly, poly, migrating polyarthritis. And, and um, so veterinarians are, are keen in on, keyed in on that. Um, there is uh, not yet approved, but there is work on a Lyme disease vaccine. Hmm. Um, and so it's not, it's not ready yet. I don't know all the details. And I hope Elizabeth may have the, the latest on that, but mm-hmm. ideally we would have a vaccine um, hopefully in the future, but it's not, not there yet. So uh, so many Minnesotans concerned about Lyme disease uh, uh, have had Lyme disease or are close to someone. What do we know about the future of care for this or, or possibly, you know, better treatment? Yeah, um, I think it's it's definitely an issue that a lot of people are are interested in, you know, improving, making sure, mm-hmm. trying to b- get the tests to work a little better. That's been brought up that they're not always great. Um, and the vaccine as well. So, you know, in the last few years, there um, is a new diagnostic test that can work uh, a little better at diagnosing some of those early um earlier cases of illness. Um, one of the big limitations of kind of the traditional diagnostic test for Lyme is it, you know, they're based on antibodies and your body produces antibodies after an exposure, but it takes a while. And so if you're performing that test too early, you're not going to get a result because your body doesn't have antibodies. And so one of these newer tests is better at detecting things sooner. So that's mm-hmm. that's a step in the right direction. Um, and then, yeah, as Dr. Pats mentioned, there is uh, a Lyme disease vaccine that I think is in some of the later stages of um, trial, clinical trials and approvals. And I, the last I had heard is that, you know, maybe by 2025, there might mm-hmm. be something on the market. So okay. much closer than we've been in a long time. In our last 20 seconds, Elizabeth, uh, the final weeks of summer, I hate to say that, but, you know, August 1st <laughs> is next week. Uh, just what do you want people to know? Yeah, just, just you know, get out there and enjoy it, just, you know, as best you can with the heat and the air and all these things. But know that there is risk. Um, you know, you're going into the realm of the insects. And so don't forget your repellent. Um, be cautious. Um, be aware of your body. Listen for symptoms. And mm-hmm. contact your healthcare provider if something concerning comes up. Stay informed. We've been talking with Elizabeth Schiffman. Uh, epidemiologist supervisor with the Minnesota Department of Health, as well as Dr. Jonathan Patz, uh, a medical doctor there at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, also doing research on environmental uh, impact of climate change. Thank you so much to our guests and to our callers. Please be safe, everybody, in that heat. We will talk again tomorrow morning at 9.
Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.